Welcome to Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name is Alice, and I'm one of the members of this church family. And we are so excited to have you join us today. So grab your Bible, your tablet, your notebook, pens, pencils, whatever it is that will help you engage most with today's sermon. And please enjoy our Sunday message. There's nothing quite like a good comeback story. You know, when against all odds, a person or a group or a team seems so down and out, so defeated and so oppressed, and yet finds a way to climb back into contention, to grab success, to find safety, and even secure victory. I mean, stories like those, they are surprising, and they are satisfying, and they are exciting, and they're inspiring. Now, it's probably near blasphemy to liken Christ's eventual victory to a comeback story because we know it's not that. He's always been in control. But what we will find in Revelation 12, 13, and 14 is certainly what seems like a comeback story. We're going to see them down and out, but yet Christ coming back and securing a huge win and snatching it from what seems like the jaws of defeat. In Revelation 12 and 13, it becomes pretty clear that Satan has the upper hand. The blue chip players, the home field advantage, and is running up the score before all of a sudden, in chapter 14, the Lord dramatically and definitively turns the tables. Now, for those of us who know God, who know his character and know his power, this isn't going to be a surprising come-from-behind victory, a comeback, but it is going to be satisfying as we read it today. It is going to be exciting, and it is going to be inspiring. And as we go through these three chapters, it's going to be inspiring to God's people today in some very particular ways. Now, chapters 12, 13, and 14 of Revelation, they are a bit of an interlude. It is God, through John, giving us a peek behind the scenes. We have seen this future war unveiling, seals being broken, Trumpets being blown. And now, starting in chapter 12, God takes us behind the scenes to get a glimpse at the invisible war that is fueling the whole thing. And like all wars, there is a cast of characters at play. The first character, chapter 12, verse 1, is a woman. It says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. This woman is a sign, a symbol, it says right there in the text, of national Israel. These stars, the 12 stars around the head, the sun, the moon, this is a hearkening back to, if you remember Joseph, young Joseph, and the dreams he had at home that made his whole family mad. But the second dream he had is about the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down to him. And he brings that dream to his father, and Jacob says, what, are your mother and I and your brothers going to bow down to you? But the whole idea is we fast forward here, and we see that the sun and the moon, Jacob, and the 12 stars are his sons, or the 12 tribes of Israel. So here we have a sign of the nation of Israel, depicted as a woman. And she's crying out in pain, ready to deliver a child in Revelation chapter 12. Talk about a scene of vulnerability. A woman in labor as this war progresses. That is exposed. That is danger. 
Now, the second character, as we keep reading, is in stark contrast to this laboring woman. It is the dragon. Verse 3, Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were given diadems, or crowns. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. This murderous monster, and that's what he is, has clearly enough power and authority to knock angels from heaven, that's these stars, sweeping them out of heaven. And yet all of his power and all of his might here is focused on a baby. Focused on a woman, a baby, a, ba a woman about to give birth. He wants to devour this child, kill this child. So here we have a massive dragon versus a laboring mother and a baby. The odds are not looking good in this scene. Now you've likely guessed at this point who the child is, but John clarifies in case there's confusion. Verse 5, And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, Psalm 2, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. This is Messiah. This is Jesus. Delivered to the world through the nation of Israel with a destiny of global rulership. No wonder the dragon hates this kid. The boy threatens his demonic and global rule, and she wants to kill him before he gets started. But as we saw, the child escapes, caught up to God, and by the way, so does the woman. Verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. So Messiah's gone, and so is the woman. They're gone as well, and they're on the run, right? So it seems, again, that things are not looking good for the home team, right? They're, they're on their heels. They're running away, and the dragon is hunting. Not a good scene. As we come to verse 7, the scene shifts from earth to heaven. Maybe the dragon is pursuing that child who got up into heaven. I don't know. But we're introduced to another character here, the angel, or as he's called elsewhere, the archangel, Michael. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Although we probably assume this was the case, here we're explicitly told the identity of the dragon. The same serpent who slithered into the garden in the beginning is still working to undermine God at the end. He has not given up, deceiving the whole world. And as we read elsewhere in Scripture, he comes along to accuse God's people before God himself. He goes into the throne room to say, you know what they're doing? Do you see what they're doing? And accuse us before God. We see this, for example, in Job chapter 1. Now there was a day when the sons of God, angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came along with them. Satan in the throne room of God. Same with Zechariah, chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. 
This is one of Satan's roles. He's called the accuser coming before God to say, do you know what Josiah has done lately? Let me show you. If it wasn't for my identity with Christ, he would have a lot of ammunition, wouldn't he? He goes to accuse us. But as John was shown in Revelation, there's coming a time when Satan will be barred from God's presence, defeated by heaven's armies and banished to the earth, thrown out of heaven, never to return. Now at first, as we go through this chapter and there's these defeats, and we're like, oh, these odds are not looking good. At first, it seems like this is a win, doesn't it? And even the text says that in chapter 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. So heaven's armies overpower and expel the dragon's armies, paving the way for the salvation of Messiah's kingdom made possible by Messiah's blood and declared by God's word. No more accusations from the accuser. And we would say, hooray! Yay, we're winning now, aren't we? Well, hang on a second, not so fast. Verse 12. It says, for this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Yeah, no kidding. The enemy's been expelled from heaven. Yeah, rejoice. And we remind ourselves now, who's in heaven at this point? Well, we know, and I said at the beginning of our study, I believe the church is already removed. We're already caught up to the throne room. We're the elders around the throne, perhaps. So we're, we're there. We're rejoicing in heaven. Maybe also the tribulation saints who have been martyred, they're there. Of course, they can rejoice. Satan's gone. But what about the rest of the people? Keep reading in verse 12. Woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Yeah, good news in heaven. Not so good on the earth. Because now the dragon's mad. His pride's hurt, he's backed into a corner, and he's relegated to earth. No longer having access to the throne of God. You know, it's one thing to know that there are coyotes around Oakville. It's another thing to find one, starve one, give it rabies, and put it in a locked room with children, right? That's one thing. So it's one thing to know they're out there roaming about. It's another to corner the animal and have it mad. And that's exactly what Satan is doing here. His time is short. His domain is limited, and he's seething with fury. Woe to the earth and sea indeed. Verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Remember, the child's gone. He can't touch him anymore. So he turns his attention to the woman. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her, to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. This is an allusion to Exodus 19, when Israel coming out of Egypt, out of bondage, was given wings of an eagle to fly off to safety. Same thing's going to happen here in the future. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and, be, and hold the testimony of Jesus. So having failed to devour the child when he was born and having been flung to earth out of heaven, Satan turns his maniacal rage back to the woman Israel. 
And if not for God's supernatural protection, let's face it, she wouldn't stand a chance. It's not an equal fight. Now this scene, it does give us a glimpse of not only a war that is coming, but a war that has been ongoing since the beginning. Satan heard, we need to understand, God's promise in Genesis 3.15 that one was coming from the woman who would crush his serpentine skull. It's going to happen. And ever since then, Satan has been on the prowl trying to prevent that from happening. He did so by trying to corrupt and pollute and pillage humanity so they wouldn't bring about this one, this seed, to kill him. And then when God eventually later clarified there was a specific family that was going to bring about this Messiah— the, the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this woman, Israel, he turns his attention to that nation, focusing on destroying and distracting them. And you read through the Old Testament, that's exactly what he was doing, trying to get them off course. And yet when he, Messiah, came anyway, what did Satan do? He attacked him. He tempted him in the wilderness, said, worship me and we can get all this, this death stuff out of the way. He's trying to derail the Messiah himself. He turns his nation against the Messiah, the ones he came to save, they reject him. He goes into one of his followers, Judas, so that he betrays Messiah. And then he hangs him on a tree as well. But now Messiah is with the Father. And the world is still waiting to see the serpent's flattened head under that messianic boot. We're still waiting for that. It didn't happen at his first coming, but it will happen at his second. An event that sits on the other side, we need to understand, of Israel's repentance. Christ is going to come again. And defeat Satan. But Israel, his chosen people, need to come back to him first. In fact, we see this explicitly in Acts chapter 3. Peter is preaching in the temple to the Jews of the day. And this is after Pentecost. This is after the Lord went back to the Father. This is after the crucifixion, after all of that. And he looks at his brethren, the people of Israel, and he says this. Therefore, repent and return. Come back to God. Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away, including crucifying your Messiah, by the way, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. So though he can no longer prevent Messiah's first coming, Satan tries to prevent his second coming by killing, persecuting, and distracting Israel, stopping them from doing the one thing that would usher in his sure and final demise. And he's been doing that throughout time inwardly, hardening Israel's heart, turning them against Yahweh, but also outwardly through anti-Semitism and all this other stuff, squelching Israel lest they turn back to God and usher in his doom. In Revelation chapter 12, 13, and 14, at this point of the story, let's face it, he seems to be winning. The dragon, the woman on the run, Messiah gone, he seems to be winning. And he doesn't let up as we come to chapter 13, where a couple more characters show up. First, we have this beast. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems. And on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like that of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne 
and great authority. So here we have, as Daniel 7 predicted, a terrifying ruler of rulers arriving with global influence and blasphemous ideology and demonic empowerment. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. These are the same words that John used in chapter 5 to describe the lamb that was slain. Now, did the lamb die? Yes, and was raised again. So it seems at least like this beast is going to die, a fatal wound, and be raised again in some way. And the world goes nuts. The world follows him and fawns over him like they should have when Jesus did the exact same thing, but they didn't. Instead of worshiping the Father because of Christ, they worship Satan because of his antichrist. Verse 4, they worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? In other words, time of death. Start the ten count. This fight is over. It's done. Who is like the beast? There is none like this one. And the beast's influence, his irreverence of God, and his hatred of God's people, and his popularity with the unsaved, it just keeps on growing. There was given to him a mouth of speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on earth will worship him. Everyone whose name was not been, who has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. It gets worse and worse and worse. It seems like he's winning, doesn't it? He's got his dragon, a woman and a baby. The child's gone, the woman's off in hiding. This dragon grows in power, sends his beast and he doesn't let up. In fact, it seems like to finish the job, he calls in his last character. Another beast, but we'll call him the sidekick. Verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. We already know he's a deceiver, right? He looks like a lamb, sounds like a dragon. Uh-oh, that doesn't sound good. Verse 12, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. Notice that a little nod to the fact that Satan is not omnipresent. He is not all-powerful. This is not a one-to-one -one war, God versus his enemy. No, it's in his presence. He's confound to the presence of the beast. Not that he's not powerful. He is, but his power has limits. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. So this sidekick, he goes out and he, any influence, any worship, any adoration that this first beast lacks, his sidekick goes and gets it for him. He's his evil propagandist, we might say, going out to rally worship for this first beast. 
It's clear that at this point of the war, Satan is setting himself up as God. He's got his resurrected Antichrist and his holy hype man. This is the holy or unholy trinity of the tribulation. I once heard it said that nothing makes a creature less like God than the urge to be his equal. That is exactly what Satan has tried to do, is trying to do, and will try to do in the future. Scramble for God's throne, a throne he will never have. Miracles are performed here. Benevolence and peace is promised and worship is demanded. But it isn't long until those cheers, they turn to terror in verse 15. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast. So that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. This is just demonic. It's demonic at this point. Obvious, explicit demonism. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who under, has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Here's where I tell you the identity of the Antichrist and what that number means. Just kidding. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Some of you got nervous, started shifting. And you're just, no, I'm not going to do that. But look at the chaos. Execution for resistance. You stand up against this, you're dead. Forced participation. Controlled commerce. It's not really the heaven promised by the one true God, is it? It's kind of the opposite of that. And it seems that victory here is secure. Brothers and sisters, we cannot underestimate the enemy of our souls. We cannot underestimate him. Satan, Satan is cunning. He is powerful. He is ruthless. He uses people and governments and ideologies and programs. He is better than us. He is stronger. And because we belong to his enemy, because we serve the one he hates, because we believe in the one who will eventually end him, he hates us too. He hates us. What does the Bible say about Satan, the adversary? That he prowls about this earth like a roaring lion looking for someone, anyone, to devour? that he was a murderer from the beginning. There is no truth in him. He is the father of lies, leading the thoughts of believers even away from pure devotion to Christ. Can he pull us away from pure devotion to Christ? You bet he can. He cannot take our souls. He cannot take our life, but he can take our joy, our blessing, our usefulness. He can take all of that. And he's more powerful than us. He can cause pain, oppression, and disease. He blinds the minds of unbelievers, blocking the light of the gospel, snatching up the seed of the word before it produces faith. He disguises himself as an angel of light, doesn't he? And yet he has workers, wolves in sheep's clothing, teaching doctrines of demons as though it's saving truth. And in the last days, as we've seen in this book, he will come with deceptive power. Miracles! Not all miracles are from God, brothers and sisters. Satan can perform miracles as well. That's the scary part. He comes so convincing. How do we defend ourselves? We stand no chance by ourselves. He's too powerful for us. He's been watching millennia of game tape on us. He knows exactly how we fall. There's a war coming, but we understand that we're in a war now. 
That's why God says, put on the full armor of God. Not just part of it. I'm giving you an armor. Suit up, brothers and sisters, he says. He says, put on the full armor. Without God's help, it is checkmate. We're done. It's checkmate. He's, he's won. He's victorious. He's too powerful for us. Unbelievers are under Satan's power, but believers are not immune. He will discourage and distract and bring doubt. Satan loves apathy and arrogance and legalism and idolatry. He loves it. Loves it. Satan is too much for us. And against such power and desperation and skill, there is no comeback without the Almighty. Now, with the Almighty, that's a different story. And it's a story that's previewed in chapter 14 of Revelation. Look with me. 14 verse 1. Then I looked. Yes. Then I looked. And behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. And with him, 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. It's amazing. Just as the dragon stood before the woman, chapter 12, and the beast stood on the sand of the seashore, chapter 13, so now the lamb is seen standing on his heavenly mountain with his glorified army at his back. Comprised of Jews who refuse the mark of death but have the mark of life, saints who preceded the wrath and the living creatures. His, the lamb, his is not an army of broken, idolatrous slaves screaming in terror. His is an army of purchased children who are singing of victory and they are blameless and they are with him. And it says in the text that this is just the first fruits of his army. There are much more coming to join the ranks. See, if chapters 12 and 13 are kind of a peek behind the scenes of this war, the spiritual war going on, then it's kind of like chapter 14 is a peek behind that peak. It's a peek behind that curtain. Because on earth, it looks like this unholy trinity is winning, sprinting toward the finish line, running with gusto and saying, we are victorious, but now we're shown in heaven. We peek behind the scenes and we see the Lamb. And let's just face it. The Lamb does not look worried here. He's not trembling. Like, I wonder how this is going to turn out. That is not the Lamb's posture. He stands with his army, waiting for his time to bring redemption, to bring the consummation of all things. Let's read the rest of this chapter, starting in verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of water. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, 
saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put your sickle in and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. The lamb has his army. He's not worried. He has his army, and he also has his victory cry being declared across this whole war-torn earth. He says, fear, glorify, and worship the true God who is creator and judge. The lamb is not worried here. While there will be those on earth coming to faith during these days, persevering saints and martyrs who are known by God, who are collected by God, who are rewarded by God, there are many who reject this eternal good news. There are many who hear it and say, no, thank you. This, this warning, this invitation, they say, we don't want it. And these, like wicked Babylon and, and those who worship the beast, will experience the undiluted, never-ending wrath of God. But the lamb is not worried. The lamb is not threatened. It may have looked like Satan had the upper hand, that he had the best players and that his lead was insurmountable as we come to the end of chapter 13. But there's coming a time when from heaven the lamb will make all things right, sovereignly reaping the withered, lifeless inhabitants of the earth and those ripe with false religion. The lamb's not worried. He's worthy. He's going to win. That's how this book ends. That's how this story ends. What we're being shown, it will happen in the future. But it's also happened repeatedly in the past. Maybe not to the extent that we await to see, but it has happened repeatedly in the past, and it's this. That time and time again, Satan has attempted to attack God, attack God's people, attack God's plan, attack God's Messiah, and every single time, God uses that evil to further his own holy redemptive ends and move that serpent toward his doom. Every time. It's like this divine judo match. Satan comes at God, and it's not a one-to-one. He's so sovereign. He's so big. Nothing Satan does can affect his plan. Just think with me back through Scripture. Think of the Tower of Babel. Remember that scene in Genesis 
where Satan works in humanity to have them build this, this tower that reaches up to the heavens, a monument of humanism. Look, we don't need a God. Look at us. And God comes along, and what does he do? He doles out languages and ethnicities that will one day all stand around the throne and worship the Lamb together, a monument to God's creativity and redemptive work. What started out as a monument of idolatry becomes a monument of God's goodness and power. Nice try, Satan. Duck, move, and you're closer to your end. Satan caused Job to suffer, didn't he? Tormented him. But then Job becomes a picture of godly lament and trust for all of us to cling to. Satan afflicted King Saul, but then God anoints King David. Satan tempts Christ, which actually proves his worthiness to do what he came to do. Satan enters Judas, filling, fulfilling prophecy along the way. Satan torments Paul, giving him a thorn in the flesh, just keeping him humble and most useful. Finally, Satan kills the Christ, unwittingly atoning for the sins of the whole world and paving the way for the resurrection and the death of death. Every time Satan moves, God uses it to his ends. Every single time the dragon wages war, the lamb wins. It's happened constantly in the past and will happen climactically in the future. It's true when Satan seems to be winning. It's true when it seems to us that the Lord is silent. It's still true. It's true when it seems wickedness is prevailing in this world. It seems that persecution is rising and apathy is growing. It's still true, brothers and sisters. The lamb is not worried. He is not worried. Perhaps, just perhaps, those who belong to him shouldn't worry either. Just perhaps. I'm not saying Satan is not dangerous. We've seen clearly that he is. I'm not saying that this world is not fallen, that our flesh is not convincing, that sin is not enticing, that suffering is not real. All of those things are just as true and real as the coming tribulation upon the earth. But if our Savior is sovereign, and he is, and if our Lord cannot lose, and if our God sits on his throne and laughs at the rebellion of people against him, and if he has given us all we need for life and godliness, and if we are total victors in Christ, and if our future is secured by the infallible promises of an all-powerful God who cannot lie, and all of that is true, if those things are true, then maybe, just maybe, we can rest. Well, I'm not worried. We don't need to be worried either. This week, as I was thinking through this text, I couldn't get Mark chapter 4 out of my mind. It's one of the times where the Lord is on the sea with his disciples, and a storm comes. And you know this scene well. It says in Mark chapter 4, verse 37, And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. The lamb's not worried. The lamb's not worried. And they, the disciples, woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They've been reading my diary. You know, I say that. How did they know I would say that? I look around my life. Lord, do you not care about my stresses? Do you not care about the bank account? Do you not care about my health? Do you not care about my stress? I'm trying to serve you. Do you not care, Lord? And I stand with the disciples in this boat in that moment. Maybe you're there with me. And Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind, di and the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, the disciples, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The lamb's not worried. Are God's people worried? We're with the one, the lamb, who 
talks to the wind and the waves and rebukes them, and one day will stand and rebuke the dragon and say, no more. He will come with his armies, and it will not be much of a fight if you look ahead in the book. It's going to be quick, and it's going to be done. We stand with that lamb. I'm aware of some of the trials represented in this room right now. They are significant. They are heart-wrenching. They are burdensome, sleep-stealing, chaotic, painful, faith-testing, and confusing. We're not being told here to overlook them, to ignore them, to marginalize them or spiritualize them or anything like that. That's not what we're being told here. What we're being invited to is in spite of them to fear God, give him glory, and to worship him. That's what we're being called to do. In spite of the chaos, knowing that we're on the winning team, whatever it looks like, it doesn't matter. The lamb is not worried, brothers and sisters. He's worthy, and he's going to win. And we who are covered by his blood win with him. Let's pray. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more sermons and other resources, you can visit our website at oakridgebiblechapel.org. To listen to our weekly podcast, Word Processing, you can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform. Remember, you can always join us in person or on our live stream at 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. Thanks for watching.